Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. When you get op- opportunities and platforms in life, whether you're a parent or a pastor, a leader or an artist, once you have been given a platform, there are so many good things that you can do and so few great things. And the good things are always so easy. And the great things always require a little bit more of a push. Hey everybody, you're listening to The Calling. I am Richard Clark, your host and an editor for Christianity Today. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Keith Getty. He authored one of the most popular worship songs of all time, In Christ Alone. And his calling ultimately crystallized around the realization that the modern church is um, at the first point in history where what we're singing is not being decided on by the leadership of the church as he sees it. Once he noticed that, he started to seek out a way to short-circuit the current system, which he frames as being basically owned by and decided by Wall Street, which is a fascinating discussion. Getty's hymns have a distinctly theological focus. He sort of tries to avoid worldly trends and focuses instead on lyrical density, breadth, and depth. And as a result, he's, he's composed a series of hymns that churches around the world have embraced. But he's just as invested in how his songs are sung in church than, than which songs. He's a huge supporter of congregational worship, a huge proponent of that. And that's a, an approach that makes the members of the church the focus of worship rather than the performers on stage. I talked to Keith Getty about how children's choir changed his life, the problem he has with Wall Street, and the ways he leads his own family in worship in his day-to-day life. Wanted to also mention that uh, there's another, those of you who are interested in this podcast may also be interested in my uh, previous interview with Andrew Peterson. That was in November of 2017, last year. Um, really good interview, a lot of similar uh, subject matter and themes there. I would definitely check it out. Um, he just released a new video and song. and um, d- Yeah, so he's in the... He's out there in the ether, and I just thought you might find that interesting. Um, One more housekeeping note. This will be one of the last episodes of The Calling. We're going on indefinite hiatus after just a few more episodes. They'll be good, so check them out. Please stay subscribed. Any uh, future podcasts that Christianity Today puts out, and there will be, um, will be announced here, and you'll want to be aware of that. So please make sure you stay subscribed to The Calling there's like no cost to you. It's free. You won't ever have to worry about it. But um, yeah, I'm excited about the next few episodes. I'm excited about the future of CD Podcasts. But the calling, yeah, it's winding down. It's coming to fruition. It's finishing up. I'm proud of our archives. Definitely sift through the archives. Check them out. There's a lot there that's good. I might even talk about that some more in the coming weeks. But uh, for now, I wanted to remind you that Christianity Today Magazine offers a redemptive yet honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the church and culture. 
As a subscriber each year, you'll get 10 award-winning issues and PDF editions for your tablet. Full access to ChristianityToday.com and online archives dating back to 1956. Just go to orderct.com slash the calling to subscribe to CT Magazine and support thoughtful, essential journalism and help us to continue to produce great podcasts, whatever they may be. Here is my interview with Keith Getty. You're living in Nashville now. Yeah. How long have you been in Nashville? Um, we've been here seven years. Okay. We've been in America 12, and uh, but we grew up in Northern Ireland. Chris and I both grew up in the north of Ireland. So. Wow. How? Um, what brought you to America? A plane. They, they leave. They that leave makes sense. <laughs> Otherwise, your arms get tired. Yeah. You know I mean, so it's a... No, we, um, we, we started writing hymns in the year 2000, uh, and that, that was a... That was a, a, a labor of love and a labor of just absolute frustration, and you need to do this. And uh, obviously, the first hymn out was was in Christ Alone. It was two thousand and one. So that that gave people a a sense of we had written the three points of what we wanted to achieve in hymns, like from the very start. We'd written these are the three goals, but we wondered how we're ever going to get there. And the Lord, as a as a gift, gave us in Christ Alone as opening songs. So that kind of, in a sense, blew the doors open to to show people what could be done, to get people excited, to, to wake up interest and to give us an opportunity. And so then we got married in 2004. We quit the music industry, which was my primary source of revenue at the time. And in 2005, in 2005 that is, and basically for since our lives since then, all we've done is write hymns and been, and been stewards or yeah. ambassadors, I guess, of those. So. What were you doing in the music industry when you quit? Primarily, primarily I was an orchestral composer arranger. That was where, that's where most of our... Uh, our money was earned that's, and we also did some production work we did some consultancy and then we also set up a charity in Northern Ireland an arts charity which was which was really which is still going which is growing but I handed it over to my number two at the time and it's it's grown ever since so okay so you came to America to sort of pursue hymn writing uh, yeah just well, we, want, we wanted to continue to write the hymns and be stewards of the hymns and America was the obvious was the obvious place. first of all we're being invited by a lot of people so okay. we're getting a lot of yeah. invites so, so that like was who like, um, well, there was churches, there was colleges, there was conferences, uh, there was seminaries, there was, um, yeah, and, and, and we began even to get requested to do concerts as well. So they thought, okay, let's maybe go over. And, and we did a coast-to-coast -to -coast tour. We went for two weeks in 2005 early on, then we did a coast-to-coast -to -coast tour that fall, starting in Boston and finishing in California. And then um, at the end of that, we decided to move. And by that stage, we were very friendly with Alistair Begg. Okay. And so we made that our base. So it was great. Yeah. What was like the the difference in the religious? I'm interested in why America was such a b better fit for what you're doing well, now. It's, well, it, uh, let me say two things. First of all, we, we still consider ourselves commuters. You know, we, okay. we live yeah. in Ireland, okay. but we live in America from September to June. So it's like we go to college in September. Let's go, let's go to college. Sure. We go, to, we go there in September yeah. and we stay till June. Then we go back to Ireland for the summer. We have a little house by the beach and we nice. do all yeah. the fun things you do in Ireland in the summer. And it's fantastic. You uh -huh. know? So it really is like student life. Yeah. You know, they just never, we just never grew up. But but America was was the most strategic place because it it had so much of the leadership for the global church still happens out of America okay, yeah. as well. So so first of all, there was, there was a lot of requests. Second of all, it was good to have a strategic base. And thirdly, a lot of the people who were inspiring us were in America. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, from the likes of, you know, Bible teachers to, to talented musicians we could be around. And so it just seemed like a good fit at the time. 
Uh, and so for those three reasons, let's give it a shot for two years. And immediately we began to see, you know, a lot of things change quickly. We're, our reach to the, to the two-thirds world is huge. It is, just grew massively because we're in America. Um, our, even in Britain, we went from doing small concerts to being able to sell the guts of 6,000 tickets for a concert in Belfast, even though we weren't there. Wow. So yeah. percep- some of our perception changes. But I think we just, I think we grew. I think we became better. And um, personally, I think we got involved in good churches and had good friends and that we made some good choices there. I think, I think as writers, you know, our, our, we've gone through several evolutions since, which has been really helpful of our, of our writing process and brought lots of people into it and which has been really helpful and refreshing. Um, so that, that's been good as well. And then I think also, you know, we, we learned, America is where we learned to perform, where we learned to, you know, have a stage, speak better you know, sing and perform better, have a better band. This is our life's work. We started doing this in the year 2000. You know, we we, we, we dream of what the, the world could be in 2050, you know, with the values that we're trying to, it's really in many ways, it's, it's, it's art and it's values and trying to build, push those values into the, or trying to accelerate those values in the global church through the hymns that we write. And so, and so, you know, if the Lord takes our life today, that's, then blessed be the name of the Lord. But uh-huh. but we we build towards 2050. We don't, we're not trying to use this as a, as a, to retire early or to or to move into country get a country deal or a CCM radio deal or you know or to write film scores. Now this is our life's work. Our life's work is, is is writing hymns for the global church and being stewards of them. So so that so that I was just about to say like we haven't quite gotten to your what your calling is because I haven't asked it outright. But sure. it sounds like that's your calling is writing yeah, hymns for the yeah, global church. It's writing hymns that that, that teach the Bible sure. uh, to to the global church. And we started in two thousand. We said there were three things we wanted to do. One was to write hymns that help that help build deep believers in the twenty first century. We live we live at the most exciting moment in human history as Christians. There are more Christians in the world. The Bible is in more languages. There's more conversions in the last century. Uh, but to, to, to coin the, the overused phrase by Charles Dickens once again in The Tale of Two Cities, we live in the best of times and we live in the worst of times. Right. The challenge is to be Christian. And uh, and so we need to build deep believers. And part of how we build deep believers is in the songs we sing. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to coin my hero, Martin Luther, you know, he talked about the reformation of the church mm-hmm. through the preaching and the singing of the word. He said, as I read the scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the church fathers, it seems to me that the preacher's job is to explain the word so that we understand it better and the musician's job is to help us carry it out of the building. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's how important saying it. That's why 20% of scripture is just pure song. Yeah. Because it is, it would have been an anathema to Luther that somebody would preach the Bible and then you'd have an emotional fun song that gives you kind of an emotional release and kind of in, huh. a, in a marketed form of music. Do you know okay. what I mean? That's just. Been... So what's the contra- what's the contrary approach? What's the what's the alternative to that? To, to preaching and then having a, a, a song that's just like, well, having 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 thing. having having wonderful songs, but deep songs yeah. that help us ground and learn our faith. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Jewish people throughout history had to learn, and the, and the Jewish reason they learned they learned the Psalms as a way to understand the God of the Bible, to yeah. understand His nature, to understand our response. They, 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 even the Song of Moses, from the very first song in the Bible, the Song of Moses, it teaches the Jewish people their history, their heritage, how God's saving power worked through history, and so it helped them understand who their their sense of identity came from the songs they sang. You know, and, and again, throughout history, you know, the early hymns of the New Testament were, were, were doctrinal songs about what Christ had done, his death and resurrection. Uh, and again, throughout church history, the church fathers are more known for their songs. Um, even in the Middle Ages, the, the qualification to, for a, for, to, to become a, to, to go into a monastery was that you'd memorized the Psalter. Yeah. 
Do you know yeah. what I mean? That was because then, then you have this you have this nuanced understanding of the God of the Bible, who is holy, who is almighty, who is just, who is who is omnipotent, but also who is who is full of compassion, who who's a God who loves peace, who who you know who knows who leads us like a shepherd, who knows us like a friend, who delights in our praises, and so we get a nuanced understanding of the God of the Bible instead of some kind of narcissistic. You know, he delights in my praises. He's all loving when I'm feeling down. And he delights in my praises when I'm up, and you know, other than that, we kind of make it up as we go along. You know, yeah. and so, 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 so that was the first thing we wanted to help at this key point in history. You know, the Western Church is has has really messed this subject up. In the worship wars, and also, to be honest, in, in the sale of, of church music to, to Wall Street. And then what you've got in the two-thirds world is mostly first, second, and third generation Christians who have no Christian hymn heritage. What, so did you, think, what do you mean by the sale of worship music to Wall Street? Can well, you expand the, the on majority, that? The majority of worship songs in the top 2000 today are owned are administrated or owned by companies that are that are that are owned by Wall Street. Okay. So this 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 gives us a unique thing. But if you look at it from a historical perspective, mm-hmm. this is the first point in history that what is sung in church is not being decided decided by the leadership of church. Mm. You know, the Jewish people sang the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Throughout church music history, it's been a combination of of four things: either psalm singing, liturgical singing, localized singing in where the leadership of the community help us work out the songs we sing yeah. and monitor it in that sense there's nothing coming from the outside mm-hmm. or, or or fourthly then with luther and of course the advent of the printing press and mm-hmm. the, the began again thing called the hymn book and so the church leadership have always decided what we sing we're now in a phase that 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 we're being told that you know young kids who don't know that much should lead the singing at the front because it's all about sincerity and because they can <laughs> yeah. sing and because the church has to look young because otherwise all the kids are going to go out and smoke and leave the church right um um, and so you, you, and so you get this combination of immaturity leading it uh-huh. with no theology of why you sing, and then the pressures of Wall Street putting stuff to them on the internet and saying this is the song you got to sing next. And you know, with the best will in the world, many of my friends work for these companies. With the best will in the world, you know, there is at the end of the day, if you don't hit your targets in those companies. You're having to find a new way to feed your children in February. Yeah, there's an economic. Do you know what I mean? There. So, yeah. so, so you, that is not the same as when you got together and said, "We're going to sing the psalms. We're going to sing hymns." Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a natural falling away of of we. It, it's not the same principle of the psalms that mm-hmm. we sing about God's anger, that we sing about God's wrath, that mm-hmm. we sing that we sing laments. Right. You know that that that's that 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 cannot be part of it. And I think that's why, for example, we hit the controversy back with the wrath of God thing. Is it wasn't because it wasn't because. Tell me about that controversy. Well, when uh, oh well um, well the short version of, of what was a very drawn out chapter was the PC, PCUSA's new hymn book banned the hymn in Christ alone for talking about the wrath of God being satisfied in Christ okay. alone, and so this then became. I, I was in Ireland at the time. I missed it. I have to say, but mo- this became a sort of a media storm. Yeah. Where because they had promoted that there were going to be Getty songs in the hymn book, then they had went there. They felt they had to make a statement and so they make a statement then this begins this kind of online sort of war between different groups blogging and facebook and everything else and yeah. twittering yeah. about the whole thing and then they they then had to make another statement and they accused us of promoting divine child abuse mm. which then led to washington post usa today getting involved in the whole thing and so yeah. it, it, it kind of it escalated pretty far at the time mm-hmm. and uh and and so that, that was kind of an interesting little chapter. But I think, to be honest, that what was shocking to me was that it was the only song that mentioned that kind of stuff. I think that was part of the thing. It's like modern songs aren't supposed to touch on on anything which is anything anything which is too much about the uniqueness of God without 
without its narcissistic implications, through to any of the dark, judgmental, or tough things to go without, to do with anything, to be honest, that's eternal. So if you go to heaven and hell and then wrath and that kind of stuff, so that 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 does not square with, with the model. And so I think the big challenge for pastors, senior pastors, and also for parents of families, mm -hmm. is that we have to, more than ever, take control of the songs we sing. God's people learn their faith, have always learned their faith in significant part through what they sing. So so if we don't take control of it right now, mm -hmm. somebody else is, and it's not the right person. Yeah. In the past, it was good to take control of it, but we also had protection. Mm -hmm. The protection has been blown the protection ceiling has been blown off and so i think that i think it is a huge issue and, and i don't think it's I don't, I don't think it's the churches are singing lots of heresy primarily yeah i think the issue is that we lack the breadth mm -hmm. and we lack the depth yeah yeah it seems like we've we've set up a system maybe where we're accidentally responding to trends and to sort of like uh whatever happens to be cool at the moment we're like leaning into that big time in our church worship, right? Like that's that's the risk there, right? Correct, correct. But I think you know that that's why I think at the end of the day, what a church singing singing is not something you can you can hire away. Singing is holy activity. Okay, it yeah. is the job of the senior pastors. Now, whether he encourages his team and lets them choose the songs, or whether he chooses them themselves, or whether it's some form of collaboration, is, is not my business. You know, but at the end of the day, they're responsible. The senior pastor is responsible for the songs his church sings, however he chooses to lead that, mm -hmm. because that is part of how his people lead their faith. That is part of how he shepherds the sheep mm -hmm. in, in his church. And so, and so our three goals really to do that. Secondly, to return the conversation to how congregations sing, where the conversation in church, church life was about how to actually our congregations singing. You know, so every musical question, so we did a survey in, 19, in, in 2013, when we're tra traveling around, uh, where we asked uh, and many, many people, what's the first thing, if you were to describe the music in your church, how would you describe it? Or how was the music in your church last Sunday? Or if you're at staff meeting this week and you're asked about the music, what would you say? Yeah. And not one person in every single talk said, how did the, how did the congregation sing as their first question? Huh. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. That everything from songs to hymns to volume to quiet to worship leaders to organists to choirs to worship bands to drums to musicians to teaching teaching new songs to production to technology to screens to hymn books all this stuff came before how do god's people sing yeah it's something they do yeah, for yeah. Us. but it's completely it's completely upside down yeah in a sense being a musician is no different in church is the same as being a film composer you know our job is to take all the skills that god has given us and all the learning we've done in the same way as a film composer does that to help dramatize a picture and make it more powerful our job is to help the congregation sing better mm -hmm. do you know what i mean it's not you know it's it's not for a film composer to show off all his jazz chops no no he's trying to help people understand this poignant moment Similarly, we're to take our call our skills and and help the congregation. It's not a reduction of our skills; it's the most beautiful possible use of our skills. It's the it's the holy privilege of our lives yeah. to help God's people, His church, His His body, His bride, sing each Sunday. Was there a moment where you realized like this is what we are called to do? You know, it's an interesting story. I have to think because I've done it for so long. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I go, you know. No, there wasn't. You know, I've I've known this forever, but yeah. there, it, it was an interesting journey, and it's interesting. You know, looking back on it, I was with a guy yesterday who was, you know, he's much younger than me, and who was bemoaning some of his recent experiences, and it, it began to get me thinking in this again because I started mm -hmm. at the age of ten, and my biggest memory of church in my teenage years was two things. One was the sheer joy of as a kid 
being around older people mm-hmm. and finally being accepted in the social circle because of church music. Mm. You know, for those of you out there who are pastors or in church life, the, the binding quality that music has is incredible. Mm, I, I was involved in a sad, sad article last month through the Church Times, which is a newspaper in Britain. Yeah. Um, it's, been, it's a historic newspaper built at the Church of England and the, and the government, obviously, uh, did, a, did a thing on And the, the guy's article was actually on how the death of children's choirs killed the Church of England. Wow. In other words, he's saying wow. not evangelism, not not Bible teaching, not prayer, not anything supernatural, not not the decline of morals in Britain or the rise of Islam in Britain. None of these things yeah. are anything to do with this. He says it was the death of children's choirs. And yeah. actually his argument is incredibly compelling because he his argument is children actually learnt the scriptures. They were they were under preaching from a young age. They had a very positive experience of church. They made Christian friends and Christian role models. Their parents thought friendly and positively about the church. And at, be- at best, and but even at worst, the church was always a friend. It mm-hmm. wasn't a stranger. Mm-hmm. It was a place where life was, where young people were, where yeah. energy was. And um, his argument was the death of children's choirs. And so and essentially he's blaming the modern worship movement to some degree huh. for actually destroying the Church of England. So it's a fascinating read. Yeah. You know, it's a fascinating read. Sorry, I shouldn't say the modern worship movement. He's blaming elements of the modern worship movement for... Yeah. You know, so, so, so it was a fascinating... Were so, you in a children's choir yeah, growing up? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Many of them, lots of them. Of course. You know, it was great. You I know, guess that was like My first stick. solo yeah. was verse two of I Walk With You, My Children. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've wondered how much... But the second memory I have is is of the horrible experience of watching a dysfunctional relationship in church leadership, you know, and that was, and for years that would make me, I would wake up in the middle of the night. It was a horrible thing, but rather than make me hate church music, it actually made me more determined to almost like right that wrong. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, you know, I, I carried a lot of, a lot of bad feelings around for many years, which, which I shouldn't have done. You know, it, it carried deep pain for, for many years. And, um, but but actually, the Lord was, I think, using that to make me think more profoundly about this subject, to be really sure about what I knew. In what way? Um, just about what, why do we sing? Why, do, do I believe? Why do we sing? Why is it so important? Yeah. And how do we in the 21st century provide a church that is deep, that is passionate and dynamic, and that is artistic and beautiful and curious and creative? That's, that, that's the dream we want with those three things, with, with, the, with the doctrine with the congregational singing and with the higher view of artistry. And then it's interesting, even musically, you know, I, I was originally a flute player. Well, I was originally a guitar player and guitar got me into music. So, and it also, it gave me a sense of contemporary music. Then from there... When I, did you start playing guitar? I was 10. Well, I wasn't yeah, young. I, I, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to be a sports guy. You know, I was. I just, I just, <laughs> I have a sports guy's personality. You okay. Know? Extrovert, competitive, kind of, you know, that kind of... Okay, my person. yeah. I, I don't have that kind of artistic sensitivity that most artists, most real artists have. Interesting, yeah. So the guitar pulled me in the church door. Then I got into the flute in a really big way. And um, I would practice for hours on end. And, uh, and you know, I remember uh, I was studying with James, Sir James Galway in Switzerland at the time. And he said... You're never going to make it, and it was like it was like it was like a thud that rocked my life. He basically just was brutal one night. He he actually gave me opportunities after that to become an arranger. So while I was still at high school, I was I became James Gollick musical arranger while I was at high school. Oh, so wow. so that opened up the music professional music industry. But uh-huh. but looking back on it, what better way to learn? What better way to learn melodies, classic melodies, than to have to practice them two hours every morning on your flute? Yeah, for yeah. five years, just yeah. making melodies more beautiful. You know, 
you know, I used to complain about being in a conservative society or growing up in a little small country in Ireland because Ireland seemed so uncool to me. Mm -hmm. I used to think about being a Presbyterian, I think. But, you know, the, you know, our home, we didn't, we didn't get to listen to pop music. We had to listen to Christian worship and Christian music and classical music. But yet all of those things, I think, combined to give us a form of... All those things were the things that go into the juicer before you press, press on. Mm -hmm. that allow our music to come out the way it comes out. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. so I, I, I try to encourage artists today because there is such there is such a frightening level of homogeneity. I remember I was giving a talk for a group of kids from all the Boston colleges. So mm -hmm. there was a bunch of kids, kids from Berkeley College of Music. There were jazzers. There was some, some Harvard kids. And they came with it. And they were bright kids. They came with all these questions. And I heard it. I said afterwards, you know, I've got, I actually, I had a meeting this afternoon. The meeting's been canceled. If any of you want to come up, I'm just going to grab a coffee. Mm -hmm. Bring me your music. So I get flooded with all these ambitious kids, uh -huh. you know, type A kids, who actually had brought their music anyway. Yeah. And, play, and all their songs sounded like cheesy worship songs. Hmm. You know, these kids who are at Harvard doing, doing arts and literature degrees, writing these cr silly words that are just, that, 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 you know, that were so predictable. You know these jazz kids who have got who have got more harmonic nuance than I and their big toe than I have in my whole body. Right. Writing these like four chord songs that just had no harmonic interest. Do you think that's unique to like the Christian music world, or is that a musical? Is that like a general music thing? Gosh, right I, now? I don't know. I think I think part of it is the Christian music world because the tragedy is one of the tragedies we have at the minute in the arts is that is that the church has so dumbed down, you know, the hypocrisy of, of the church of, of preachers is that even in the conservative side, when they've gone back and learned from some of the great preachers in our history, mm -hmm. or, or, or the Puritans, or the Reformers, the Revivalists, or, or, or whoever their poison is, you yeah. know, whoever yeah. they pick as their poison, yeah. you know, they have, there's been tremendous growth in areas of church life because of looking at history. There is no such humility uh, or wisdom yeah. shown with music, even though we have some of the finest poets and composers in history. Right. Do you know what I mean? So let's, let's, what new song can we learn? Well, there's a bunch of old songs that actually are way better. Do you know what I mean? And actually would do, but, but that's, that, that, you can't even ask that question or you're, or for some reason you're kind of some, you're some retro defeatist, you know? So, 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 so I, I think it is, it is peculiar. One of the peculiar things of the minute is, you know, because of the increase in Christians being encouraged to be in the arts, because of the increase of urbanization of Christianity at the minute, mm -hmm. in the top 10 conservatories of music in America, we have, fought, I think, twice as many Christians in those colleges. Now, even though Christianity is declining, we have twice as many Christians in wow. the top conservatories. The majority of them are going into a church on Sunday and offering to help stack the chairs or make the coffee. Mm. Because some idiot at the front who plays three chords and can't tune his guitar and but's really self-confident is leading the service mm -hmm. and doesn't under it doesn't know what a cello would do mm. do you know what i mean and it's it's, it's, mm. it's pathetic yeah, yeah it's, it's utterly it's, it so how do, what would you say to a church that would that would think like we just don't have the resources we don't have the resources to pull off like a, a small orchestra in well, our, that, that's that's perfectly fine because yeah. the main thing is about helping our congregation sing okay. you know i i have a very martin luther approach to music in that number one the our job is to help the congregation sing but secondly i have an all-embracing view of music i think music should be in every part of life i think beauty is something we should embrace uh -huh. it is a gift of god there is nothing so beautiful so attractive mm -hmm. do you know what i mean and so if we have the resources we use them but the, the main thing is to help the congregation sing and I, I would say in my experience of traveling in this country in 12 years the standard of congregational singing has absolute has almost no bearing in the terms of proportionality to to talent of musicians. It's all mm. about attitude. Mm. 
Interesting. God's people yeah. who are made alive by Christ, whose pastor is excited about congregational singing, sing well. Mm-hmm. Whether the pianist plays four mistakes every every line, mm-hmm. or whether they sing unaccompanied. And probably nothing or, to do with church size as well. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. I, I said in one turn, I've told the story several times and get laughed at now, the, the best two singing churches in one tour were, were, were Brooklyn Tabernacle and Capitol Hill Baptist. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you know, they, 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 I think the pastors disagree on just about everything from, you know, <laughs> Armenian yeah. to Calvin to, to charismatic to cessation to to African-American, to European, yeah. to modern songs, to old songs, to most famous choir in the world, doesn't believe choirs are useful for church, you know, <laughs> right, to 25 right. professional musicians, to no professional musicians, to amateur musicians, yeah. do you know what I mean? To 45 minutes of continuous singing, to songs mixed up with prayer, you know, they have nothing in common, right. do you know what I mean? Right. But they sign better than their because the two pastors care, do yeah. you know what I mean? You know, so so daddy is in charge, and the same as the So fam- you're not dogmatic about the, the way in which you bear out this principle for the most part no i mean okay. the bible does say certain things it, we, we want to have we want to have a clean we want to have a clean hands and a pure heart that's yeah. what psalm 24 reminds us we do we do it with thanksgiving you know thanksgiving in our hearts is that's that's a biblical command we let the word of christ dwell in us richly we mm-hmm. shouldn't be singing stupid songs we shouldn't be singing light songs this mm. is important it's too important and fourthly, we sing among the saints. We sing to each other. We are singing to each other. It's an expression. Singing is not this kind of authentic thing that's authenticized by by some emotional tug that I get, some quiver in my liver that yeah. I get two thirds of the way through it. Mm-hmm. It's first of all the word of Christ dwelling in us. So it's an authentic picture of the God of the Bible, and then it's singing to one another. It's an expression of us being body. Mm-hmm. It's like someone says, "I don't get anything out of church. I'm giving up in church." Well, that's not the point of church. The church is the point that we're serving each other, mm-hmm. because in three years' time, when I get leukemia, I'm. A, I might need them. Do you know what I mean? Right. So, so similarly, we sing to each other. So, 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 so those things. But, but yes. But for the most part, I don't care. I don't care if you're doing black gospel or if you're doing or if you're doing vespers. You know, there's no. That doesn't. That's that's of no bearing in my in my mind. This episode of The Calling is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com ct. In what ways has working in Bible translation surprised you or defied your expectations? One of the biggest surprises for me has been the amount of detail that it takes to create a Bible. It is a massive amount of detail and it matters in the typesetting phase. I mean, you think about it, not just the millions of characters that are in a Bible that is just a normal text Bible, but also in Bibles where you have study notes or even those that don't have study notes, but you have like cross references. And another big surprise to me was just the physics of a Bible. Really, we say the Bible is a book, but it's also a library. It's 66 books. And in order to get it into one volume, you have to make choices about paper and about how the ink is going to align on the page and how the the text needs to line up right against the back of the the text on the other on the on the opposite page so that there's not a lot of bleed through and i mean all sorts of things that i had never ever considered that suddenly i realized were were really important aspects of making the bible available this episode of the calling was brought to you by the christian standard bible go to csbible.com/ct to find the right christian standard bible edition for you This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? 
This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Was there ever a time where you doubted that this was your calling? Um, no, I, doubt's an interesting question. You know, um, I, I've always been, I was always searching for what I needed to do, but I, I, I had different ideas along the way, but mm -hmm. the Lord closed doors and as he closed doors, opened others, you know, and I had four very big disappointments between, between 18 and 24, 25. Okay. And then when I found it, but I kept working, kept working. And then when I heard to write the hymns, the first one that came out was in Christ alone. So it, the Lord in the end blew open, blew open a pretty high, yeah. big barn door yeah. and said, walk in it. And so I've always taken that as a sign that, 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 that the importance of what we have to do. Um, but, but to be honest, I think as, as well as that, I think so much of life is, 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 I think calling should come out of holy living. You know what I mean? It's so much of life is about, is about my relationship with God on a daily basis. So mm -hmm. much of it is about my relationship with my wife. And so much of it is about, you know, my relationship with my kids mm -hmm. and those things have, those things, those things, I might never have done that if I hadn't married Kristen, you know, I mean, yeah. I always get asked on the, because we do so much, because so many of the preacher movements, you know, are associated with our songs, we get asked, asked to do a lot of, lot of interviews with, with theologians and preachers. And uh, they always say, what theologian or preacher, you know, influences you the most. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I irritate some of them sometimes because I said, uh, my, my honest opinion is that, is that my wife is the most influential theologian in my life, you know, and uh, because, you know, I, we talk about everything. Yeah. And so she's, she talked more about other things with her than our people. So that, that, that dialogue is changing things. Also, can you give like a specific instance in way, a way that she, she has influenced some, I mean, I, well, we talk about, well, here's, I mean, at a general level, let me tell you about this. She, two, two, two things. Yeah. Number one, I can't fool her. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So when I'm saying my real motivation behind this is, yeah. she knows when my real motivation is complete utter complete selfishness right. and my bunkum that I can, that, but the problem is I've learned over the years how to fool people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I can't fool her. Yeah. I, at least I've, I've tried, I try, but it's very rare I ever do. And even if I fool her for a few seconds, she asks enough questions and then makes a fool of me, you know? <laughs> but the other side of the coin is this, is she knows the hours I spend on my knees praying. Mm. She knows the crying we've done. She knows the hurt that we've taken. She knows the disappointment. She knows the passion and she knows that ultimately I want to please the Lord. Other Christian leaders don't have that privilege. They they yeah. will always kind of wonder what's what's actually his game here. You know, yeah. what's the what's the end goal? What he's that that is a tragedy. So yeah. I think you know, I am I, definitely more concerned <laughs> with with my own integrity, with with integrity of my marriage and with the time we give to our to our girls. And, and and we've created so many boundaries to try and help that. And even then we're failing. You know, we you know, I woke up yesterday morning at four realizing there was something I there was something I hadn't done with one of my daughters for a while. I I'd let it slip. And I, in the speed of having a fall tour and the conference back to yeah. back in the last yeah. six weeks, I just had let it slip. You know, yeah. and so, you know, it's a it's a daily my wife always says we we begin today. 
You right. Know, you know, right. So right. <laughs> when were you married? We got married 16th of June, 2004. So um, how old were you? I was 29 and she was 23. Okay. So 24. you were you were pretty well established in the music world at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. And um, so what was the... You guys... I mean, you guys are kind of partners now, right? Like in the... Yeah, we, we've an unusual marriage because... For the for the first two years we hung out together we we wrote music together we performed music together we by default I guess had to I guess you would have called us business partners because we owned a lot of songs together right right so we actually it took her two years to realize that I wasn't this you know overweight unattractive Presbyterian who had too much to say you know <laughs> she, what, she, she what does that mean <laughs> I don't even know what that means for two years for two years I think she didn't find me attractive you know but finally After finally she was married for, to no, you? no oh, when before. we first met got it then okay. so so for the first Sorry, two I was years really confused there no 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 for the first two years of knowing each other let me rephrase it then for the first two years yeah. of knowing each other yeah I, she didn't find me that attractive in that way which was a which was a of huge disappointment to me so i had to keep faking <laughs> things like let's write songs together let's, okay. let's go out for dinner to discuss this okay interesting so it you was, were working together before you got married oh so we worked for two years ago before that before so you i even think dating yeah so i think i would say you know from the human point of view outside of the spiritual level i would say from the pure from the mature on the pure material level of life mm-hmm. i have few regrets in life except that i didn't marry her sooner and have kids sooner you yeah know? but i think I think one of the miracles, one of the good things of that is that, is that we were able to learn the discipline of working together first. And then so, cause I think that's, that is a strain for a lot of people and it's a strain for us too, you uh-huh. know, sometimes, but, uh, yeah, but we've had 13, over 13 years married and we've, um, we've never had a night apart over almost a thousand flights and, yeah. and never a night apart. So, wow. yeah, yeah. So it's been kind of, but that's because we work together. So it's a, it's a unique right. thing. So earlier you mentioned that you're, you're like, uh, you're not, sort of a standard artsy type you you tend to be com- a competitive personality uh yeah well certainly i i you know i, I come from a fam. my mom's family were all business people and so i'm around a lot of that oh and so i think that and then my, my friends I, I didn't know any musicians growing up because mm-hmm. i grew up in northern ireland which is a very unartistic culture the south of ireland is a very artistic culture the north isn't and uh and so i grew up surrounded by theologians and business people Huh. So that was, I think, wow. that was fascinating because it, even getting into the hymns, I had written down the three points of what I wanted to achieve in hymns before I written my first hymn, which yeah. is completely bizarre. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and your 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 mission and goals. Okay, we're, but very. So we've always been very visionary that way. And as yeah. I said, that's that's how we approach what what we believe is the calling of our life, mm-hmm. and, and indeed the need the need to build belief. You know, the the, the dream of three singing. Helping build deeper believers, mm-hmm. helping build more united families and united congr- united churches, and then helping build a, a deeper level of 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 you know of, of artistry and understanding and curiosity and cre- and creativity among Christians. So that's so I think that 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 that's been sort of the dream, and we and we've organized it that way. You know, I notice often when I come to meet kids in Nashville, one of the one of the, the two things that worry me the most is when it comes to their per- the stewardship of their personal gifting, mm-hmm. they will. They would be willing to sell or give away almost anything if we could get them the American Idol dream. If they could, if mm. they could have the money, the recognition, the, the platform, mm-hmm. the power, whatever it is. Um, but when they walk into church, they want to rule the world, mm. and it's completely inverted logic. You know, mm-hmm. the Lord is the Lord has made. And Alistair Begg helped me articulate this a lot better when I first came to America. And that is, if the Lord has given you a gift, you're the steward of it. Yeah. And if that means you have to sit in business meetings you don't want to, if you have to make hard decisions rather than hide behind somebody and then sort of <laughs> fake blame them, yeah. If you have to make a, that's the way it has to be. Yeah. 
And so we, we become stewards of our own gifts. We, so we set the long-term goals, the short-term goals, the medium-term goals. We, 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 where is possible as humans, control our destiny, uh, control the destiny of what we're doing rather than giving away to other people. And then secondly, in the church level, you know, I, I can write, I write hymns for the church all around the world. And I, you know, I, 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 tr I really put all my passion into making Sunday morning services late. When I'm in charge of leading, I really put a lot of passion into it. But if my pastor says, you're gonna have to cut one of your songs, I have too much to say today, or something else, or I forgot to tell you there's an interviewer at a baptism, you gotta lose that, or I, I wanna finish with this hymn. My answer is yes, sir. Because I am serving the pastor and I'm serving the church, and so the the, the, the leadership the leadership the, the leadership in, that needs to happen with the stewardship of our giftings, but the sub, subservience that needs to happen to our church leadership, you know, I think are both really important. So I'm trying to encourage that because it's it's it, in our culture that is counterintuitive. Yeah, you know, you know, we we, we the the goal is not stewardship; the goal is is fame, yeah. and then when we go into church. You know, it's you know we, we want to make that our platform. You know, there's also like a desire for autonomy, right? Like for the autonomy and the thing that you're doing. Well, um, there is, there is, there is. Except people get offered a record deal, yeah, or a publishing deal, uh -huh. or or a or a quarterfinal spot on American Idol, and they'll and give up that. Autonomy. I don't see, I don't see anybody with autonomy there. No, that's a good I can't, point. I can't yeah, find this really autonomy that all my millennial friends are talking about. You know, as soon as that happens, that you know. It, <laughs> It, it, it's a funny kind of autonomy, but the problem is with church when the church can't buy you out. Do you know uh -huh. what I mean? You know, then, then, uh -huh. then, then that's where they become obnoxious. And uh, you know, you know, life is about service. You know, uh, that you know, another area we've struggled to communicate with millennials. We're trying to learn is, you know, when I get asked a question about how do you, you know, how do you write a song? Well, the answer for me is, you you, you sit down and you try and record over a period of time. 100 200 500 melodies and mm. if one of them if one of them isn't as bad as the rest then you begin to work on a lyric mm -hmm. that's how i wrote a song well that, nobody cares about that nobody nobody wants to know that yeah, yeah. wrong answer you know <laughs> yeah you they, they want like and yet, uh, yeah sit in a room with some candles yeah, yeah. And that's right that's right i want like, to walk to, the, to you i want to walk to the mountaintop and write something write something on a full moon you know right. so, and, <laughs> but you know and you know what that can work uh -huh. you know i mean a lot of a lot of my inspiration when i'm in writing happens you know walk on the beach that night or in the shower. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's amazing how, you know, but, but you have to be working to get there. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, and also a lot of people have short, anybody I know who has a writing career more than 10 years, you know, whether it's Stephen King or whether it's, you know, the likes of someone like Chris Tomlin in this town as a worship songwriter, these guys are extraordinarily devoted, committed, focused, hardworking, relentless writers you know what would you say has been your biggest struggle gosh how long did you have a long time um, <laughs> it's a wonderful question um i think i think in everything is the the ease of being able when you get up opportunities and platforms in life whether you're a parent or a pastor a leader or an artist once you have been given a platform, there are so many good things that you can do and so few great things. And the good things are always so easy. And the great things always require a little bit more of a push. So, you know, you waking up in the morning, how many good things are there? Did I have like three daughters and a wife to cuddle? I've got, I can sit out my deck and... Look at look at look at the trees. I can mm -hmm. make good coffee. I, you know, 
I can check my emails. I can look up BBC Sport, check up the British sports scene and how Liverpool Football Club are doing and stuff. There's so many things I can do. Um, but prayer is the great thing. Huh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Getting up early before everybody else and praying, that's the great thing. Yeah. So And so the day goes on. And so the day goes on. So I think... I think that's it. You know, you know, Tim Keller talked about Christian ministry where prayer is not the underneath everything all the time. Mm-hmm. Is is I think he talk, I think I forget his phrase, but he said it was almost hypocrisy. So I I begin every year trying to ask how do we do that better. You know, I mean, my wife and I have worked hard at trying to pray together, and it's been a tough it's been a tough struggle for us. This year, we've actually with our new pregnancy, with our fourth pregnancy, mm-hmm. we actually started to text each other prayers. So I, I will write when I do my prayer time in the morning, I will I will format it and text it to her. Wow! So that yeah. she reads my prayer, so she knows what I'm thinking, about. and that's been brilliant. You know, that's, that's been, amazing. Yeah. Been brilliant for me, been brilliant for her, brilliant for marriage, and uh, so that kind of stuff. So I think you know we we have to begin with those disciplines, and then and then you know and. Praying and singing with the girls every day, mm-hmm. you know, is important. You know, the, it's interesting. The New England Puritans in family life, for example, New England Puritans wouldn't allow a man to take the Lord's Supper if he wasn't singing and praying with his family hmm. every day. Yeah, yeah. And I th- I, now that most people I know think that's an overreach of the Lord's Supper, an overreach of authority, mm-hmm. which the, the Puritans did a lot. But <laughs> but but the interesting logic behind it is that they're saying, well, well, he can go to work and he can and he can go home and you know work in the yard or the, the the farm or 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 the community or with the play with the kids or or help in the house but that's not his main goal yeah they're just good things yeah they're not the, the great thing not the commanded thing and so that that that's been a challenge to us you know and and in family life i mean again it's where singing is so important in family life i remember you know <laughs> Kristen and i <laughs> were in a concert once in princeton and we were asked to appear at a Christian school, classical Christian school in the morning. They used one of our hymns each month to teach doctrine uh-huh. to kids. And so they said, would you come as a guest? And a few people said, you should do this. So, okay, Chris and I went and she was pregnant with Charlotte and we brought Eliza who was just three. So she was going to school. Eliza couldn't do all these kids. Mm-hmm. So they get up and give this massive, very, very overly flattering speech about mm-hmm. how our hymns are important and teaching doctrine and how they're pleased. We're here today. And all the kids get up the front to sing one of the hymns. And Eliza jumps off Kristen's knee and joins the kids. We try to stop her, but you know, Kristen's not mobile, and mm-hmm. Eliza sees these kids. She's not going to be stopped. So, of course, these 150 kids all singing this hymn, and who's the one kid that doesn't know the words of the hymn? <laughs> Our redheaded daughter. So, like, uh-huh. we're going, oh, no, no. And then she's like, hi, mom and dad. And we're like, no, it's not us. It's not us. Daddy, there's my daddy and mommy. So, no PR company could have spun me out of that mess. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was, so we... So we began that day and, and said, you know what, we, we got to root our, our family in, in, in family prayers and singing, you know. Mm. So we, in the mornings we sing like fun songs, pop songs, you know, same when I say pop songs, I mean like we sing up-tempo songs, we sing hip kids songs that teach Bible verses, yeah. that teach Bible truths. Yeah. And then at night we do a hymn every month. So we teach them a hymn every month so that they're getting a big collection of hymns that help them understand about the Lord and, and hymns that they'll sing through their life. Right. You know, we did the Facing a Task Unfinished project last year. Every missionary we studied who who grew up in a Christian home, talks about how the hymns from their childhood mm-hmm. helped deepen and uh, and focus their compulsion to give up great careers to be missionaries, give up all the money and success of cricket to be a missionary, mm-hmm. that they helped them through their times of suffering, that it helped them teach the Bible to locals, that it helped them, you know, in, in, in face of death. 
or, or in persecution. And so we want, we want to make sure our kids are, you know, we, we, we pray and, 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 and then I, I just believe we cannot, and indeed I believe no pastor or music leader has any business getting on a platform this Sunday in, in this country or any other country if they're not singing with their kids every day. And that comes from a position of people who have failed and learned, you know, so, you know, even John MacArthur, I remember talking to him once and saying, what advice do you have on parenting? And he says, a lot of it, he says, a lot of it begins with filling your home with songs of the Lord. I mean, ah. He said that before doctrine or literature or teaching or sermons, he said, the songs that you fill your home with, you know, that you fill your cars with, where life happens, car, kitchen, playroom. Yeah. Fill those with songs of the Lord. I, I see that. We are, we are not doing what we should be here yeah. in our family, but yeah. we do things like we sing the doxology right. to our son when we put him to bed. And yeah. that moment is maybe the... Like just holistically, holiest, holiest moment of your day. <laughs> holistically, it's the best moment of my day. And yeah, yeah, no, I way, see that. I see that. You know, um, and and it, it does make me think, especially with you here talking. Like, why am I not doing this with throughout the? Why is this not a liturgy throughout the day? Why are we not like making this a thing that we do for all sorts of parts of our day? Yeah, yeah. You know, we do like a kind of a half-hearted prayer for our meals yeah, yeah, yeah. you know kind of the standard stuff yeah yeah but it feels very like um i think there's something about it that can feel tacked on yeah that singing solves that problem yeah, yeah. like you have to invest yourself no absolutely if you're singing. And, and, and it's like anything any 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 physical exercise speaking of somebody who's just put on weight you know any physical exercise is something we build gradually we build an appetite for it's like mm -hmm. it's like because singing helps you know if singing is how we understand digest or, or be edified. Mm -hmm. Well, well, you know, how did I, how did I, how did we feed Eliza? Well, she, you know, you know, she was breast, started with breast milk, then, then the baby milk, and then we gradually put, you know, then baby food, then we gradually began to put, you know, the little fruit or vegetable into her food, and, and so mm -hmm. gradually, you know, and I think singing is the same as that. You know, mm -hmm. we, we we build it, we build, but we build it with appetites, with tastes that they like. Right. You right. know, and. Um, it shouldn't be, it's, nothing should be fake in life, least of all that, you know. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, what would you say is your deepest fear? You know, I would, I would like to say that it's standing before God someday and saying that, you know, I build a, me a mediocre-sized business or ministry or a ministry that happened to be a business as well, that, that I did a lot of bunch of mediocre things, but that I was, I was a... I was a part-time prayer with a very mixed personal witness. And even at the professional level, I didn't focus on the things that could really have made a difference. I think that's probably my biggest fear. You know, they said about John Knox, the Scottish reformer, that he had such a, he had such a, so strong was his fear of God that he feared no man. Unfortunately, that's not me. You know, and so, so much of my day is, is, anxiety comes into my day because right now before before i get thursday night we're having we're having an extended we've just we're just off the roads we're having an extended weekend with the kids we're having a three-day weekend with the kids we finish at four o'clock for, for five o'clock on thursday and uh i have to do three big phone calls before then mm. and too much of my time is spent thinking i don't want to face those phone calls yeah you know yeah. and so so sadly there is too much time spent in those other things instead of the freedom and peace that that comes from you know the peace that passes all understanding right the last question go go you finish your one it's it's always the same question go 
Um, if you could step into a time machine, go back in time and step out of that time machine and then introduce yourself to yourself, what would you tell him? I would go back to, I look back on the era of being 10 to 30 hmm. as being filled with anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. yeah. Not that I got over that, but I I think I would say there is a reason why the most common command in Scripture uh-huh. is do not worry. Yeah. Um, Because very little of it was worry about not being a better prayer. Mm-hmm. Very little of it was about worrying about not being a more loving human being. Mm-hmm. It was all about the it was all about the the, stu- the silly stuff. Yeah, you know, and so that just shows a heart that that's given to all the wrong things. Do you feel like you you struggle with anxiety more than most people? Oh no, and 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 I would say anxiety. I mean, uh, even just stress, worry. Mm-hmm. You know constantly constantly heavy stuff in the mind i yeah you know Kristen helped me relax a lot my my, my cousins heard it my, you know i remember moving to li- live in belfast my cousin helped me with that and and then Kristen helped me a lot you know in terms of being able to rest yeah the important gift of rest you know it's it's one of the one of the one of the awful legacies of protestantism is the is the la- is the lack of ability to understand what the jewish people understood about sabbath about the discipline of sabbath and that's everything through from meditation and worship to preparation for worship, right the way through to feasting and festivals and eating, drinking and dancing to the yeah. glory of God. You yeah. know, all of that, you know, it's funny because in the music world in my 20s, I worked with a lot of my friends who were Jewish and a lot of them were like, even some of them were agnostic Jews mm-hmm. and they still had a much better rhythm of life mm. than I had as a Christian uh, because they they understood the they understood the importance of rest. Mm-hmm. They understood the importance of finishing a day and saying it was good. And they understood the, the rhythm and the pattern of feasting yeah. and celebrating yeah. and loving music and the gifts that God has given us. Not because we should eat, drink, and be married for, for tomorrow we die. No, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. No, they didn't worship. We don't worship the gifts, but, but they're part of, they're given us as a gift for the rhythm of life in the same way as we're given you know, we're giving our wives as a gift. You know, all we have is Christ. My friend Jordan Coughlin wrote that song, All I Have is Christ. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about it this morning as I drove in the car. You know, I don't have my wife. I don't have my kids, but they're, they're gifts that have been given us for this journey, mm-hmm. you know. And um, uh, similarly, you know, the, gift of, the gift of being able to, you know, rest and refresh yeah. and those things. Put, how do you put into practice that principle of Sabbath? Like, what does that look like in your life? Um, well, for us, on we, we have different seasons of life. We we commit ourselves to twelve weeks a year of touring. Our, okay. our touring company, one of our companies, is a touring company, and we and we commit to basically sixty paid events a year, uh, or sorry, sixty events a year, and uh, of which we try to nearly all of them happen over a twelve week period of time. So for the rest of the time, we are we're home. So in the touring season, like this weekend, we're having an extended weekend, and then in the touring season, this weekend we're having an extended weekend. And then, um, but usually we just we just watch our weekends and watch our Sundays. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to love Sunday. You know, yeah. We're trying to encourage our girls to get excited about Sunday and church and mm. and fellowshipping with other believers, having extended time. You know, we've always lived. It's really funny. We've always lived walking distance from church. Now we've just moved house and we're we're three minutes, we're four minutes drive from church now. So it, technically it's walkable, but it's it's not a nice walk. So we drive. Mm, yeah. But we've always lived right beside church, so you can immediately pop around afterwards and. And that's awesome. And so, so trying to build that sort of culture with the kids, 
um, we tend to, you know, we tend we tend to build in end of day patterns. You know, so for example, at eight o'clock at night, we tend to either socialize or relax ourselves. Mm-hmm. We put the girls to bed at seven, that kind of thing. When we tour with the band, we've a rule that we don't critique after shows. Hmm. So after a show, we celebrate. We get together as a bus and on the bus oh, yeah. and have some time together, have a party, whatever it is, and we have a thing called Man of the Day. Where we all, everyone can vote for the person who did the most outrageously good or stupid thing that day. Um, and so we've got all these different categories, honorary man of the day, you know, special category man of the day, all these kind of things. And um, But it's really just an excuse for us to be together, yeah. to laugh and to say it was good. Yeah. You know, and did that kind of, those kind of, so that, that's some of the things we do. And then what we do in the summer is we, we go home to Ireland and then for the month of July, we're, we're completely, we're disconnected. So we, we get disconnected from internet and everything. So we do, we do five weeks a year where literally I can't receive emails. That's awesome. So that's been sort of, so that's been good for, it's been good for me. It helps us counterbalance the fact that we lose a lot of time with the girl. You know, we, we can't, on a touring day, there are too many touring days that we have to say, this will have to wait, you know. And so we're, we're, we're cutting that to 30, 30 events a year next year, which is in some ways is a sacrifice for us and for the company. But but I think for the sake of the girls, I think they've loved touring. It's, it's been a wonderful experience for them. They've a great team, great administration, great, and the produ- great production, great nannies, yeah. great homeschool teacher. All that stuff's been wonderful. But but just in the, in the broad picture of things, we think it's time for the next, next season, next step. So. You've been listening to The Calling. Keith Getty is a singer-songwriter and the writer of a book called Sing. Sing is also the name of a conference taking place in Nashville in 2018. For more on that, go to gettyworshipconference.com. You can find him on Twitter, at Getty Music. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. The Calling is produced by me and Morgan Lee. It's edited by Jonathan Clawson. Theme music by Leah Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.